0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, it is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships, striking from a hidden base, have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, a space station with enough power to destroy An entire planet pursued by the empire's sinister agents. Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. So that Dominic was Dave Prowse, bodybuilder. What was he? The green cross code man. He was. Um, And the actor who played Darth Vader in star wars and of course i was reading there the um the opening to star wars that kind of scroll that appears and i wanted to go with dave prowse because um i actually met him oh crikey well done Tom! when i was 10 yeah the year that star wars came out in uh, britain he came in his darth vader robes to salisbury library wow and i was startled when i heard him speak (laughs) yes (laughs) yes <laughs> because because of course um this is not the voice that he actually gets in the film is it Darth no Vader. no no it's all kind of oh, luke oh, all that kind is of is that stuff. james l jones
0: there tom yeah making his guest appearance yeah
2: <sighs> all that kind of thing oh wonderful but um very much part of my childhood memories star wars yeah um and uh, we are going to look at it but with a kind of very distinctive angle a historically themed angle today
0: yes because this episode is really well i mean you wanted to call it Romans in Space. I did. (laughs) Yes. Which is a great title, actually, Tom. It's a very good title. So, did you see Star Wars when it first came out? Yeah, I did. About 400 times.
2: Did you? You thought it was good? Yeah, I thought it was great. I remember laughing at the Grand Moff Tarkin. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right.
0: Well, we'll come back to, uh, to Governor Tarkin in about 15 minutes or so. Yeah, I was totally obsessed with Star Wars as a boy. So, you know, child of the early 70s. There must have been a point in my life where I thought about Star Wars every single day for hours, you know, about three year period where I just thought about Han and Luke
2: and whatnot, and I had all the toys. Rather in the way that um, American men think about the Roman Empire. <laughs> you know, and perhaps perhaps well, there's a kind of link there. There may be a link there. But Dominic, as a historian of modern America, yeah. before we get on to the Romans, can you just situate Star Wars in the 1970s and kind of give a sense of its historical significance
0: as a cultural artefact? Oh, very good, Tom. We love a cultural artefact. So... Um... Star Wars is a product of the 1970s. Now, at this great distance, you can see how it completely and utterly reflects the era of Vietnam and Watergate and the sort of disillusionment that had set in with the Nixon presidency and after. So its progenitor, George Lucas, is your sort of classic sort of baby boom, suburban, slightly disaffected, slightly idealistic kind of nerd, a bit like Steven Spielberg. So he was born in a place called Modesto, California, which is basically, it's not that far from San Francisco in Northern California. It's just a nondescript sort of middle-class American suburban town. Lucas is a very sort of nerdy young man. He goes to University of Southern California and he studies film. And he's part of this generation that come into cinema in the late 60s, early 70s, like his friend Francis Ford Coppola, who is very close friends with, who made The Godfather. Lucas is slightly different because he's always very he's always quite a nostalgic filmmaker so his his big breakthrough is a film called American Graffiti which is kind of looking back to the 1950s and he came up with the idea for Star Wars in the early 1970s at the point at which
2: the Nixon presidency was imploding. Because I gather, having read a bit around this, that the evil Emperor Palpatine, who again, we may mention later in the show, um, was based on Nixon, according
0: to to Lucas. Is that true or not? I don't know how true that is, Tom. I think it's one of those things, Lucas has given about six billion interviews. And he just makes up, says different things. And he sort of <laughs> says, well, he was, there was a bit of Nixon in him and people say, oh, well, in that case, the emperor is definitely Nixon. Okay, um, But I think obviously, you know, the idea of an evil authority figure for people of Lucas's generation and his kind of yeah. cultural sensibility, Nixon was the great villain of the early
2: seventies. And the other thing that is always said about it is that he is inspired by Joseph Campbell. Yeah. He was a, a great writer on mythology um, and the idea of universal hero. Yes, and
0: that became—I mean, I remember first reading about that when I was a student. I thought, "Gosh, how unbelievably fascinating!" Star Wars is so much deeper and more sophisticated than I, <laughs> than I ever imagined. And actually, I think now people think this is probably not quite true. Window dressing. This is window dressing. Yeah. Lucas was looking back in—I don't know—the nineteen eighties or nineteen nineties or something—and made an offhand remark, and then people ran with it and turned it into this sort of great, um, this great enterprise, teasing out all the links between Star Wars and kind of. Uh, you know, ancient Indian mythology or something.
2: Right. But we are going to do something similar with the Romans, aren't we? But before, just before we come on to that, yeah. for people who haven't seen Star Wars, and there are definitely people who haven't. Yes. I mean, my daughters have never watched it. Oh, crikey. Um, well, I tried to make them watch it and they got so bored that they drifted off. That's poor. That's very poor, Tom. So I think, I think it is a kind of period piece, although it, they've done multiple reworkings of it, haven't they, over the years. Yeah. The salient thing in the opening that I read so beautifully mm-hmm. is that it's set in space. Yeah. It's science fiction. But it happens a long time ago. So, can you just give just give us the very basic plot, very very quickly, the setting for people who haven't seen it? Yeah.
0: So, essentially, what George Lucas had wanted to do was to remake Flash Gordon. So, Flash Gordon was this story about a guy who's catapulted into space. He gets goes the Flash. Uh, Oh, I should never have. Saviour of the universe. I really bitterly now regret bringing out Flash Gordon. (laughs) You walked into that one. Yeah, I did. (laughs) Um, So Flash Gordon, very popular in the 1930s, a comic and then a kind of film serial. Lucas wanted to get the rights to, to do this, this family friendly story about a guy who's catapulted into space and he has all of these amazing adventures fighting an evil empire. He couldn't do that, so he writes basically his own version of Flash Gordon. But what distinguishes Star Wars from sort of pulp science fiction generally is that the very first film. He incorporates his kind of film school training. So there's lots of references to John Ford's film, The Searchers, or Kurosawa's Japanese films like The Hidden Fortress.
2: And the plot is Princess Leia, who we heard about and thing, she's got these plans. Yes. They get attacked. She gets captured by Darth Vader, who's an evil bloke wearing black robes. Right. Something happens. Oh, two robots. Yeah. They crash on a planet. R2 and 3PO. They get found by uh, Luke Skywalker, yeah. who is the... Kind of King Arthur figure.
0: Yes, he is Arthur. And the sword from the stone is the lightsaber that he's given by this old wizard. Uh, I say wizard. He's referred to as a wizard at one point. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi. He was the kind of the Merlin of the whole proceeding. Yes, the Merlin of the whole enterprise. They go on this expedition to try and rescue the princess. Uh, Theo, quite rightly, is saying Ben Kenobi because he's really mainly called Ben rather than Obi-Wan in the very first film. The first film was actually a bit of an outlier. There are lots of things that we think of as being sort of typical of star wars that aren't in the first film or the first film
2: deviates from them anyway we don't need to go into that anyway basically the MacGuffin is that they they have these plans yes and they have to use them to blow up the death star that otherwise will kill everyone
0: yes this terrifying space station he meets rogues and he create has this little uh, team of friends who go on the expedition there's a slight lord of the rings element to it the idea of going on the expedition And a surprise, surprise, it all ends happily and they get medals at the end, except for Chewbacca, who is denied a medal, Tom, in the triumph of the will reenactment scene. (laughs) Yes, because
2: basically, rather oddly, it all goes very Nazi at the end, doesn't it? It, Well, it does a bit.
0: (laughs) Yes. So we wanted to to focus particularly on Rome, because this is the thing that is often the the historical period that is often seen as... uh, As inspiring Star Wars.
2: Just to pick up again on that Lenny Riefenstahl thing. So we talked about her uh, in the series that we just finished about the Nazis. We did. That her portrayal of Hitler at the Nuremberg rallies inspires the ending of Star Wars, where there's this kind of masked rally. There is a kind of Nazi interface, isn't there, between George Lucas making this film and the Romans. That the Romans kind of are standing in for the Nazis in quite a lot of uh, the way that um, the Romans are seen.
0: Absolutely. So... The Nazis, we, we, we did our series about the Nazis in power. We were talking about Nazi iconography and Nazi propaganda. The Nazis were often looking back to Rome, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, the eagle standards, the very idea of those sort of Nazi rallies, the idea of kind of the mass ranks of stormtroopers, the SA, or members of the Wehrmacht in their sort of shining
2: helmets. And their eagles and their standards.
0: And their eagles and their standards. I mean, the whole thing is very clearly aping what in the early 20th century people thought was kind of standard Roman imperial iconography.
2: Don't you think, Tom? And so and so, Darth Vader and, and the Empire command stormtroopers, yes. which is obviously an allusion back to the Nazis. Are they legions as well? Is that something that is being played with, do you think? Or is this, again, kind of academics perhaps overthinking it?
0: That might be academics overthinking it. I don't think the word legions is ever used. Certainly not, uh, I'm aware of, in the first three films in the original trilogy. Let's concentrate on that first film, the original film, which came out in the US in 77 and in Britain in 78. There are sort of clues, as it were. There are Roman hints. So you had a mention of the empire in the, in the opening crawl that you read Tom so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, the only character who's mentioned in that opening text is princess Leia. And she's the first one, apart from Darth Vader of the principles that we meet in the film. And she is quite classically dressed. So she's wearing this on sort a of long flowing white robe, uh, almost a little bit like a toga. Or, I mean, some classical
2: scholars say she looks like a vestal virgin. I mean, also she has this this famous hairstyle, doesn't she? The kind of twin cinnamon buns (laughs) on either side. Yes. Which, um, again, I remember reading may have been inspired by um, a a 4th century BC statue found in Spain, the Lady of Elche. Yes. Where she has identical kind of... Identical hairstyle. Absolutely.
0: And if people want to look that up, you look at the Lady of Elche, who's supposedly, possibly uh, Hellenistic or even Carthaginian, people think. She does have Princess Leia's hairstyle. Extraordinary. Anyway, so Leia looks kind of classical. When she's captured by Darth Vader and the Stormtroopers, she protests. She says the Imperial Senate will not stand for this. So we have this idea that there's a Senate. We're then introduced to Luke Skywalker, who's the King Arthur, as you said. He is a farm boy, and basically his story is King Arthur in the Wild West. So he's on a kind of the Western frontier. He's a farm boy. It's very sort of, you know, the American prairie. Yeah. But he similarly is wearing clothes that an extra would wear in a market scene in, a, in, a, in Cleopatra. <laughs> yes, yes. Or a biblical epic. Exactly. And he talks very excitedly about a rebellion against the empire, you know, which is very kind of, I don't know, Jewish revolt or something. He meets this character, Ben Kenobi, who is a kind of hermit stroke wizard. He's a bit like a stylite from the sixth century, Tom. Mm. You know, he's- A man of the desert. Yeah, a man of the desert. He meets Ben and it's actually Ben who gives us a lot of the, well, what backstory there is. So Ben says to Luke, for over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and
2: justice in the old Republic, before the dark times, before the empire. So there he's sounding like a kind of a senator- under Caligula or somebody. Right, exactly.
0: So there you have um established in those lines the kind of the premise for the whole thing that there has been this 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 utopian republic and something has gone wrong, corruption has set in and it has been replaced by a repressive empire. And the one other bit of politics we have in the whole film is when this character, Governor Tarkin, who is played by This is by, the
2: Grand Moff Tarkin. Right,
0: Grand Moff Tarkin. So Lucas had two good actors in Star Wars, both British, both kind of prestigious. So he had Alec Guinness, who was Ben Kenobi. His sort of opposite number, as it were, was Peter Cushing, playing
2: the guy who's running the Death Star, Governor Tarkin. Peter Cushing was the kind of star of Hammer House Horror. He was very clear. Either playing vampires or killing vampires.
0: Yes, he was either he was Van Helsing, he was Sherlock Holmes, he was the actor you would go to if you were doing a, a film about one of those characters, or he'd be Dracula. And Governor Tarkin goes into a meeting of basically Nazi officers on the Death Star. They're, they're clearly dressed as, you know, Hitler's high command circa 1942. And Governor Tarkin says to them, I've just had news. The Imperial Senate will not, no longer be of any concern to us. I've just received word the emperor has dissolved the council permanently. The last remnants of the old republic have been swept away. The regional governors now have direct control over the territories. Fear will keep the local systems in line. Fear of this battle
2: station. Right. So that could be kind of obviously drawing on the ocean of um, Hitler abolishing the Weimar Republic. I mean, that would be. I suppose a, so, yes. An obvious illusion. Yes. But, but the the clearer illusion is to the collapse of the Roman Republic and the identification of the Roman Republic with political liberty and the replacement by Augustus and his heirs of um, the Republican system with an autocratic imperial system.
0: Absolutely. In the sense that the Senate, which Leia was somehow connected with, that she. And the other senators have been part of what appears to have been a kind of patrician talking shop. And our senses. this has somehow been allowed to continue and it's withered. And now the emperor has done away with it altogether. That is all we get, actually, in that first- Because I
2: have to say, when I watched it, yeah. I was obsessed by the Romans. I was in my kind of peak childhood Roman obsession, yeah. but I didn't really pick up any of that when I watched Star Wars. So I've read lots about how star wars is roman yeah but in that film it seems pretty buried i have to say well the funny thing about it is so star wars now has this huge mythology
0: you know that enthusiasts and indeed lucasfilm have created i mean the number of books star wars spin-off books and tv series and whatnot, and comics is is vast but in the first film i think the, one of the reasons the first film is successful is that a little bit like tolkien its credibility lies in the fact that it hints at this deeper history,, yeah. but it doesn't show it. So actually, you know, it's very exciting for a 10-year-old to think, "Gosh, there was an old republic and there was all this stuff." Yeah." but they never show it
2: because that would probably be a bit disappointing, as indeed it was to prove. But a contrast with Tolkien, this isn't to diss Lucas, but I mean Tolkien was a great scholar who knew vast, vast amounts about antiquity and was very, very skilled yeah. at drawing in and weaving together really quite learned and academic references to ancient history. Yes. George Lucas is not doing that, is he? I mean he's not no. he's interested in film. He's not interested in yeah. I don't know Roman literature. His knowledge of Rome is that which you would expect.
0: A well educated, intelligent, you know, a graduate of the University of Southern California who studied film. Yeah. He's not he's not sitting up at night reading Sallust. You know, I mean I don't think we should hold him <laughs> to unfair standards. Yeah. One interesting thing about Star Wars is that right from the beginning, it generates this huge industry so one of the things i mean one of the things that comes out almost straight away is a novelization and actually there's much more in the novelization i had the novelization as a boy and i loved it and one of the things i actually loved was this so it was ghost written for george lucas by a sort of pulp science fiction writer called alan dean foster and there was a long description right at the beginning of how the old republic gave way to the empire the old republic was the republic of legend under the wise rule of the senate and the protection of the jedi knights But as so often happens when wealth and power pass beyond the admirable and attain the awesome, there appear those evil ones who have greed to match. So it was with the Republic at its height. Like the greatest of trees able to withstand any external attack, the Republic rotted from within, though the danger was not visible from outside. And then this is actually this. It's in the book, not the film. We are told how restless, power-hungry individuals within the government, aided by the massive organs of commerce, propelled the campaign of the ambitious Senator Palpatine, who promised to reunite the disaffected among the people and to restore the remembered glory of the Republic. And so he surrounds himself, as it says, by
2: bootlickers. So this is Julius Caesar. Palpatine is Julius Caesar, basically. Well, is he Julius Caesar or is he Augustus, Tom? Well, he's then Augustus when he proclaims himself emperor, right? It's a kind of a blurring of very, very negative portrayals of Caesar and of Augustus. Exactly. And I think what's
0: fascinating about this, what I find interesting about this is... All of that stuff, I'm sure Alan Dean Foster and George Lucas didn't think very much about it. I'm sure this wasn't conscious. But that idea that the whole enterprise was destroyed from within, it couldn't be destroyed from without, it was destroyed from within. And it was destroyed by people hungry for power, by bootlickers and the organs
2: of commerce and, and all of this sort of thing. I think that's quite Gabonian. Well, it's 18th century American specifically. Yes. Because America is founded with this idea that it's a republic. You know, Benjamin Franklin famously says it will be a republic if you can keep it. And that anxiety that the republic might collapse and be replaced by an autocracy as Rome had been, and the American Republic is founded on the Roman Republic, I don't know the degree to which this is something that American students study in their history classes. But it's kind of in the air the fact that the visuals of the American Republic are so Roman yeah. means that that has always been an anxiety.
0: Well, that anxiety, that fear of ambition, corruption, I mean, the mention of commerce and wealth, the idea of fear of luxury, those are very 18th century ideas, aren't they? And they were very popular on both sides of the Atlantic Yeah, in the political classes. And so Gibbon, when he wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, you know, he moved in circles where people were dissing luxury and dissing ambition and corruption All the time. Yes. And that sort of idea that great empires or great republics are undermined by the decadence and the degeneracy of their ruling classes, and then a strong man will arise to take power.
2: I mean, we all have that to some degree, don't we? And we've absorbed it from popular culture. But here's my question on on that. Yeah. You're talking about how, you know, these books are written to tie in with the success of Star Wars. And then in due course, George Lucas revisits the Star Wars universe and he comes up with three films that trace, you know, we discover who Darth Vader is, his backstory. And the backdrop to this is the implosion of the Republic and its replacement by an empire. Yeah, But presumably this was not in Lucas's mind when he first made Star Wars. It's this stuff that basically... Scholars and enthusiasts and geeks have been poring over it, and they have, they have kind of drawn out these echoes. And is George Lucas then thinking, oh, wow, <laughs> it's, it's cleverer than I thought, or you know, it has more echoes than I thought? And is he perhaps kind of
0: responding to that? I think possibly to some extent, Tom. So um, Lucas said, after Star Wars became successful, he said, this is actually episode four. Now, it wasn't initially branded as episode four. When you went to see Star Wars in 1977, it didn't say episode four. But when I went to see it, when it was re-released in 1980, when The Empire Strikes Back came out, they had put on the episode four branding. Because I can remember saying to my dad at the cinema, we've made a terrible mistake. We've come late. This is the fourth episode and we've missed the first three. Whether he was really intending to make these prequels, I, I, I suspect probably not. He sort of would airily talk about it. But again, it added to the sense of a deep history.
2: You know, actually, you're coming in the middle of the story. And people loved that. But those first three episodes, which I I saw the first one, I thought it was so dull. I mean, I'd really rather have watched a film about trade negotiations. Well, you did. In Brussels. (laughs) Well, you did. You mean The Phantom (laughs) Menace? The Phantom Menace is what we're talking about. Yeah. So those three films, are are the, the allusions to Rome clearer in those? Are they more overt? They're much more overt. So not necessarily
0: in The Phantom Menace. I mean, these, by the way, for the avoidance of doubt... Some of our listeners may like these films. I have to be honest and say, although I love Star Wars, I absolutely loathe these films. Anyway, that's by the by. They are more overt. So the story, the theme is the emergence of this Elber of Palpatine. I think what made it so disappointing for people of my age is that we had built up, we had our own private versions, You know, as people tend to do, like people did with the fall of Numenor and the Lord of the Rings, Tom. We had our own vision of what this would have looked like. And then when you discover it's sort of computer generated Jar Jar Binks aliens and whatever, it's just so depressing. Anyway, the one thing that is quite interesting is the emergence of this guy Palpatine. He has secretly generated, Tom, all these sort of civil wars and separatist movements in order to be given emergency powers to deal with them. And so he's given these emergency powers in the film Attack of the Clones. I think Augustus is the better comparison than Julius Caesar. He is given by the Senate these powers and he says to them... It is with great reluctance that I've agreed to this calling. I love democracy. I love the Republic. Once this crisis has abated, I will lay down the powers you have given me. Of course, that is a Roman idea that someone will be awarded the powers of a dictator and then will surrender them. Yeah. And then in the final film of that prequel trilogy, Revenge of the Sith, he orchestrates a series of prescriptions like the prescriptions that claim the life of, of Cicero, yeah. the prescriptions of Antony and Octavian.
2: And again, you think here this is a deliberate echo, do
0: you think? I don't know how deliberate it is. There's also something lighter Light of the Long Knives about it, I guess, a sort of internal purge, Yeah, the massacre okay. of the Jedi Knights. And then there's this scene which is often sort of mocked on social media when he's surrounded by kind of gibbering aliens and flying saucers. And he says, in order to ensure our security and continuing stability, the Republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society. And Natalie Bortman's character, Queen Amidala, who's Luke and Leia's mother, she says uh, very earnestly, so this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause. Right. So she is the Cicero of the Star Wars Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So again, this is Rome in the era of Augustus and Tiberius or whatever, That the Senate has basically, in in its sort of supine way, is handing over power to a power-hungry, malevolent character who affects this modesty, as of course Augustus did, but in reality is more ruthless than anybody. Now, there's an Australian classical scholar called Michael Charles who wrote an article about this in the journal Classical World, Remembering and Restoring the Republic, and he says... One of the funny things about this, he says, um, and again, this is completely unconscious, I think, is that in Rome, people who criticized, you know, people who were ambivalent about the rise of Julius Caesar, most obviously, and then I suppose Augustus, they were the patrician elite, weren't they, Tom? They were, what they what do you call
2: them, the bonnie? Yeah, the optimates, the good guys. These are the people who look back, you know, who are upholders of tradition, who um, identify themselves with uh, all that is best in Roman tradition. And who have to be incredibly rich. Yeah. And the sense is in the Star Wars universe that all the defenders of the Republic are very, very posh they are. and rich. I mean, they're, they're literally princesses. They are. Right. Absolutely. And queens. And Yes. So the person who
0: says that line about liberty dying is Queen Amidala. Yeah. Her daughter is um, Princess Leia. And Princess Leia is the person who carries the torch of kind of republicanism.
2: Well, this will be familiar to people who, who may not have read books on Roman history, but have seen Gladiator where in Gladiator you have the evil emperor Commodus yes, and then you have Derek Jacobi playing the Senate which is the guardian of Rome's ancient liberties and I'm just wondering this sense of the kind of the Roman character in Star Wars it might not be coming from Gibbon but it might be coming from those kind of Roman epics absolutely cuz obviously Gladiator is is post Star Wars but you had all those epics Ben-Hur for the Roman Empire, all that kind of thing. And actually in those, it's the British who are, who are the baddies and yeah. the Americans who are, who are the freedom fighters and indeed the Christians, because the Jedi could be, you know, there are kind of echoes of the way that early Christians play the role in Quo Vadis or yes. Demetrius and the gladiators, things like that. I think that's totally right, Tom. And in fact, there's a scholar who,
0: who has written lots about this, who agrees with you, called Martin Winkler. That's tremendous to know. And um, he has pointed out that Alec Guinness, who plays Ben Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, he would have been well known to American audiences for a whole host of roles. But one of them was playing Marcus Aurelius. Oh, Of course. In the film, The Fall of the Roman Empire. In 1964. Yes, of course. The film that is the direct model for Gladiator. I mean, Gladiator is really a remake of the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah. And, you know, Marcus Aurelius, this sort of stoical character, philosophical, um, he dies in the course of the film. I mean, there, there are kind of parallels you can tease out with his Ben Kenobi character. And actually, both Martin Winkler and this guy I mentioned earlier, what was his name? Michael Charles, they point out that Star Wars shares what they call a linguistic paradigm. With those toga films of the 50s and 60s. So, Spartacus, Quo Ben Hur, and so on. So, in Star Wars, a character like Han Solo, Harrison Ford's character, the kind of rogue. Yeah, the wise cracking. Yeah, who's like a, a, a character who's fallen out of a Western or something. Yeah. He speaks like somebody in sort of 1960s America. So, he says famously, I mean, his most famous line is, I have a bad feeling about this. Now, you contrast that with the character we mentioned earlier, Peter Cushing's Governor Tarkin. Tarkin, by the way, Tarkin the Proud. Tom. Yeah, of course. The last Raymond King. The incarnation of tyranny. Yeah. And Governor Tarkin, I mean, one of the first things he says, he's talking to Princess Leia. Unleash the death ray. All that kind of thing. He says, he never says unleash the death ray, Tom. He says, <laughs> charming to the last, you don't know how hard I found it, signing the order to terminate your life. So he speaks like a sort of American parody. Yeah. It's like Mel Gibson's The Patriot or something. Yeah. And actually, this is directly copying what happened in all of those Roman epics.
2: But also kind of Pontius Pilate. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I guess so. It pains me to sentence you to death, Nazarene. All Um, that. (laughs) uh,
0: um, So um, in all those Roman epics, the hero is American. So Charlton Heston, obviously in in Ben-Hur, Kirk Douglas and Spartacus, and they have American accents and they speak in a mid-century way. But the villains are always British speaking in an old-fashioned, clipped way. So Peter Ustinov's Nero, I mean, Laurence Olivier as Crassus in Spartacus. Yes. Uh, and indeed, the two Commoduses are both played by North American actors affecting British accents. So Christopher Plummer, who sounds very British anyway, actually. Friend of the show. Yes, friend of the show from uh, The Sound of Music. And um, Joaquin Phoenix in Gladiator. And obviously what this reflects is, the, is this, again, probably unconsciously, is the identification of Britishness with kind of empire. Oppression. With cruelty and oppression. Yeah. And that's how we like it, Tom, to be honest. And people with American accents in these toga epics tend to be, as you say, Christian martyrs, Jewish freedom fighters, all of those kinds of things. And this, presumably,
2: is why George Lucas wouldn't allow Dave Prouse to actually speak. Yes. Because it would give away the fact. Luke, that... I am your father. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it wouldn't work, would it? Now, the
0: funny thing about the Toga epics is that they themselves, of course, are products of a particular political moment because they're Cold War stories. Yeah. So lots of film scholars have said, you know, these films... Project. I mean, what they're selling is a, a conflict between, on the one hand, democracy and freedom, and on the other, totalitarianism. Yeah. So the Roman Empire stands in for uh, the Soviet Empire. Although, interestingly, Spartacus was written by a guy called Dalton Trumbo, who had been yes, communist. Yeah, blacklisted. Yeah. And there is an argument that actually the films are also about the anxieties of empire. You know, and the anxieties
2: of power and all that. But I think what you could say then is that the idea that Star Wars is an allegory of Roman history isn't true. That would be to over dignify it or perhaps to to simplify it, because actually this is emerging in a kind of mixing of all kinds of vaguely understood historical ideas. I think that's absolutely right. So the villains in Star Wars are uh, Nixon's Republicans. They are the Nazis they are the Soviets, they are the British in the Revolutionary War, yeah. and they are the Romans. And perhaps the Romans lie as the furthest back. And that sense that Star Wars is set in the distant past, the ancient past, that kind of Roman quality does give it a, a patterner of class that it might not otherwise have.
0: And I think what that also depends upon, Tom is the way in which the idea of Roman history is built into the American Republic from the very beginning. Wow. So the, I mean, that's how they set it up, right? They didn't say, let's become a new American empire. They said there'd be a republic, yeah. the founding fathers. A senate. Yeah, senate. Capitol. The Capitol. George Washington being Cincinnatus. Yeah. And that fear, we've talked about this so many times on the rest is history. That fear, which is built into Americanness, yeah. that the republic could one day become an empire, become a... That terror right. that that could... That fate is at hand. And that's actually what
2: animates George Lucas's moral political universe. Yes. It's the fear that the exemplar that shadows it is the end of the Roman Republic. But there is, of course, another decline and fall that can be adduced from Roman history, which is the collapse of the empire itself. Mm -hmm. And that also has been, I think, incredibly influential on science fiction, perhaps less so in film, more so in literature and we know that George Lucas was influenced by perhaps the most celebrated of all these kind of fictional reworkings of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire Um, and I think we should take a break now and when we come back Dominic perhaps you'd allow me to have a look at that I would love that Tom thank you very much do you know what I can't wait I absolutely can't wait see you after the break Life is a Highway
0: Galactic empires reached the cinema with this group of films, which here and there offered more than a whiff of the foundation. No, I don't mind. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and I certainly imitated Edward Gibbon, so I can scarcely object if someone imitates me. That was the very well-spoken Isaac Asimov. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew he came from the Cotswolds? (laughs) That was Isaac Asimov, Tom, uh, and he was talking about Star Wars. So Isaac Asimov there says he's detected more than a whiff of the foundation in uh, George Lucas's Star Wars saga. So Isaac Asimov is one of those names that if if you're not very familiar with science fiction, you probably heard
2: the name, but you don't know who he is. So, Tom, who is Isaac Asimov? So Asimov actually didn't come from the Cotswolds. He came from Russia and his family emigrated to America in 1923. I think he was about three. He was... Intellectually brilliant, brilliant scientist, uh, but also fascinated by history and literature. And he became probably the most celebrated science fiction writer uh, of the 20th century, I would guess. So he's probably famous for three things. The first is his enormous mutton chops. He had <laughs> absolutely huge sideburns. Secondly, and there's been quite a lot of talk about this recently because of AI, he came up with these um, the three laws of robotics, which is kind of basically designed to stop robots from killing you. Right, yes. And so there's quite a lot of discussion about should these actually be enshrined. And the third is he wrote this kind of massively, massively influential series of novels called Foundation. Um, and there's a TV series, I think, on Apple. Apple at the moment, yeah, which came out in the, in the early 50s. Um, three novels, Foundation, Foundation and Empire, Second Foundation. And this was directly inspired by Gibbon. I mean, there's no question about that. Asimov directly modeled it on it. So it opens with someone arriving in uh, the planet of Trantor. And so the opening, there were nearly 25 million inhabited planets in the galaxy then and not one but owed allegiance to the empire whose seat was on Trantor. It was the last half century in which that could be said. So this is the equivalent of someone arriving in Rome in 400. Yeah.
0: Or is it a, a sort of uh, a veiled reference to that bit in Gibbon when Gibbon says, you know, if you had to pick an age, you would have picked the age of the Antonines or whatever it is.
2: Uh, but that's that's several centuries before, isn't it? This is, I mean, the, the, the decline is about to happen. Okay, right. You know, it's directly about to happen. And um, the parabola of Asimov's narrative directly follows that of Gibbon. So you, you have scenes in which imperial plenipotentiaries visit outposts of the empire for the very last time. You get kind of interstellar equivalents of the barbarian kingdoms oh right, yeah. sprouting up on you know, uh, planets that, uh, that the empire has abandoned. You have a, a chapter in which the empire, a bit like Justinian reinvading Italy, tries to kind of reconstitute the empire. But the foundation itself, which gives its name to the um, series of novels, is something that has been founded. It's a foundation by um, a psycho-historian, a guy called Harry Selden. Right. Um, and he's a mathematician who has applied his kind of crunching of data to the past and has drawn up rules of history. So by looking to the past, he's been able to work out the future. And so he can tell that the empire is going to collapse and he kind of plants the foundation to serve as a beacon of light amid the gathering darkness that he knows is going to come. So it's as though he has read his gibbon and he thinks this is going to happen again effectively. Yes, pretty much. And so the whole series of novels revolves around the fact that there are kind of what are, what are called Selden events, um, where some catastrophic thing that most people couldn't have seen, but because he can, he's a psycho historian, he's been able to work it out. Um, he knows what's going to happen. And actually, I think this is a, a trend that's particularly popular in American universities. There are historians who are very into the idea that you can kind of draw immutable lessons. So I guess the Thucydides trap would be the classic example.
0: American sort of military historians love to talk about that, don't they? Policymakers.
2: Yeah, so this is the idea that a settled power will become the rival of a rising power. So Sparta goes to war with Athens... Um, Britain goes to war with Germany it's much applied now with regard to America and China and really this is an idea this idea that you can have applied history is something that uh, has been very popular in the United States throughout the 20th century and Asimov is clearly drawing on that idea I think with the foundation
0: You know who would be a good who's Harry Seldon Tom and
2: Neil Ferguson Neil Ferguson's all all over this kind of thing So Neil Ferguson did actually organise a conference on this very idea in Stanford to which (laughs) I was invited. Tom, oh my word. One of 19 men and one woman. <laughs> right. There was much uproar about this. I believe it was called a sausage fest. How did that woman get in? <laughs> the unbelievable scenes. But you know, it was in California. I think the beast from the east was sweeping in over Britain. Yeah. I went and enjoyed the sun. What predictions for the future did you offer? Uh, I did something on Undead Rome. I did it on looking at how uh, ideas of Rome motivated Vladimir Putin. Crikey. We ended up talking about it in one of the episodes. You know, never let anything go to waste. Anyway, this is still quite a current idea. Yeah. But in the context of this idea that Gibbon articulates that the fall of the Roman Empire is the greatest, perhaps, and most awful scene in the history of mankind, he famously says. Mm -hmm. There is a great twist in the second novel, which is that Harry Seldon's reading of history turns out to go wrong. An event happens that he couldn't have foreseen. And this is the emergence of a character called the Mule, uh, yes. who is a mutant telepath. Yeah. So he can read and manipulate the emotions of other people. And he ends up conquering the galaxy and conquering the foundation. Um, he has not been predicted. And I think that this is pretty clearly an echo of Muhammad. It's a fairly hostile Trail of Muhammad. The mule is a kind of, uh, he's, he's an arrogant conqueror. Mm-hmm. But I think it is an interesting twist because essentially what Asimov is saying there is that the emergence of Islam is a kind of, you know, a lightning bolt from the blue. It couldn't have been anticipated or foreseen. It's something so startling and unexpected that even the most highly advanced psycho historians could not have anticipated it. And that, of course, is buying into the traditional Islamic narrative. I was about to say that yeah. Islam emerges because it is uh, a revelation of God, yeah. rather than emerging uh, as I think it probably did in quite a predictable way from the kind of the melange of opinions and religious beliefs. So if Harry Seldon is
0: a psycho, what is he? A psycho historian.
2: Yeah. If he'd
0: been trained in the sort of nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties by sort of a Patricia Croner figure, Tom. Yeah, he might have seen it. He would have seen it coming because <laughs> he would have said Islam emerged out of the superpower conflicts yes. in, in in Arabia yeah. um, between the Romans and the Persians and stuff. But I guess what Asimov is reflecting is the orthodox historiography about the rise of Islam and the sort of
2: 7th century at the time he was writing in the 1950s, right? As is another equally celebrated work of science fiction a series of novels like foundation that again ha- have inspired not tv in this case but a couple of films so far that are out on release and that's dune right and yeah. dune was written in the 60s by a guy called frank herbert um and it's set on an inhospitable desert a bit like uh what is it T- tatooine is it tatooine? In, uh, in star yeah. wars or Jakku? so this is arrakis yeah it's um Full of giant kind of sandworms and things but what arrakis produces is a kind of weird thing called spice yes that effectively powers space travel which oh, is also called melange rather oddly or melange yes so it's I mean this is this is um, just before OPEC so it's pretty clear that this is oil you know, spice in a way is oil yeah but I think it is clearly also an echo of um, the idea that was very very current Uh, when Herbert was writing this and and which Patricia Croner delivered a kind of devastating rebuttal to. The idea that Mecca had been a great center of the spice trade and that um, this is the context from which Mohammed emerges, that Mecca was this hugely significant center. I think it's absolutely clear that it wasn't at all and that this sense of Mecca as a center of spice trade is a kind of Orientalist fantasy that's projected onto the understanding of Islam by Western scholars who have this idea that anything Oriental must have to do with spice. And then it's turbocharged by the oil crisis.
0: Why does it matter in the history of Islam and the sort of collapse of the Roman authority in the Eastern Mediterranean? Why does it matter whether Mecca was had spices or not
2: i don't think it does particularly matter i mean it matters very much to explaining the traditional accounts of islam as history because in the traditional accounts mecca is clearly a very significant settlement yeah with all kinds of competing aristocracies um and historically, that doesn't seem to have been the case. There is no record of okay. a, a mecca that would correspond to a centre that rich and that, that significant in any of the contemporary sources.
0: But that idea of competing clans and aristocracies fighting for control of the spice trade, let's say, I mean, that is the plot of June,
2: isn't it? Yes. The Harkonans and the House Atreus, isn't it? Yeah. The, the sort of Greek name. Yeah, it is. So the House of Atreus, that's the, ha- the family of Agamemnon. Yeah. And Paul Atreides, so Paul, the son of Atreus, Actually, the parallels are not really with Greek myth. It's again, it's with Islamic history, I think, because Paul goes on to become Muad'Dib, which in Arabic means teacher, although in, in Dune, it actually means um, kangaroo mouse. Oh, it, right. So it's one of the animals of the yeah. of the desert. And he goes on to kind of become a prophetic figure, a great, le- great religious leader. He launches this jihad, which ends up consuming the entire uh, galactic empire quite Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that this is consciously inspired by the way that Islam is a terminal event in the long run for the Roman Empire and suggests that, you know, for these deeply totemic science fiction stories, it's the fall of the Roman Empire rather than the fall of the Roman Republic that is the kind of the great inspiration. Just one thing on Paul. Paul is also,
0: so we talked about Luke Skywalker is King Arthur. Paul is also King Arthur as well isn't he? He is. Sort of yeah. uh, he has a he has this sort of providential destiny that he is is sort of fated. You know people talk about him in hushed tones is he going to be the person who fulfills the prophecy and all that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, and I think that that's so interesting. I mean you're absolutely right. There are echoes of Arthur as well as of Muhammad. And both of them so the stories of Arthur are starting to emerge and be written down. At around the same time as the biographies of Muhammad, the first biographies of Muhammad are starting to be written kind of around 800 AD. And both of them are kind of responses to the collapse of the Roman Empire. They're both about the emergence of charismatic figures on the margins of the empire who take control of abandoned imperial territory. Mm. And so that's why I think it's possible to see, say, in Dune, echoes both of Arthur and of Muhammad in this story. Yeah. the original stories are both generated by this kind of catastrophic event if you're roman and i think it's clear why science fiction offers scope for people who want to explore the kind of the great dramas of ancient history but don't want to write historical fiction because if you have a, an enormous galactic empire you know you can make play with that yeah. in a way that you can't just you know, down on earth. Yes. So, Battlestar Galactica would be another example of that, I guess. Oh yeah, of course, Battlestar Galactica, which is kind of Mormonism.
0: I can't. Uh, yeah. There is this idea that it's inspired by the age of the Mormons. Anyway, so so Tom, do you have
2: anything else up your sleeve? I suspect you do. Well, I know you do. Well, you know I do. <laughs> so there is one other way in which the Roman Empire has served as an inspiration for science fiction, and that is a particular and distinctive aspect of its culture, which we have already alluded to when we discussed. Gladiator, which in so many ways could be thought of as a science fiction film, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of the napalm that is fired in the, the, the opening battle, the vast overweening scale with which Rome is portrayed. There's a sense in which the examples of science fiction are being woven back into history. Yeah, or fantasy, I suppose. Or fantasy, yes. But gladiatorial combat has featured in, um, in a number of science fiction stories. And if Star Wars is is one of the kind of the great science fiction franchises that emerged from the 60s and 70s, the other one, of course, is Star Trek. And you do get a kind of a Roman Empire. They're called the Romulans, oh, right. so the name is obviously comes from Romulus. Yes. So they're introduced in, um, in the first series in 1966. But in the second series, which came out in 1968, you have an episode called Bread and Circuses. So the famous phrase from Juvenal, which describes what the yeah. how the, the emperors kept the, the people of Rome happy. And in that, Kirk, Spock and McCoy, so the three main figures in the in the first series, get captured by a civilization that is basically Rome, but in the mid-20th century. <laughs> right and spock and mccoy get made to fight as gladiators and this is the the, um the roman officials who are announcing this. say it will be shown on television in color (laughs) so there you go that really dates it (laughs) (laughs) it does yeah it does and again a bit like in star wars you have these kind of shadowy figures they're worshippers of the sun right and at the end they all survive they get beamed back up and um Mr. Spock is kind of musing how extraordinary the parallels between ancient Rome and Rome on this on this planet are. But then he says, But I, I do not remember there being worshippers of the sun in Rome. Well, that's wrong. There were, weren't there? I mean Sol Invictus. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. But um at this point, Lieutenant Uhura yeah. pipes up and says um that she has been monitoring broadcasts from the planet and reveals they're not worshiping the sun S U N. But the son, S-O-N. Oh my word, Tom! Really? And uh, Captain Kirk, <laughs> Caesar, and Christ—they had them both, and the word is spreading only now. Crikey! So that is—that is very sword and sandals biblical epic that's the ultimate embodiment of kind of (laughs) cold war america isn't it yeah it is incredible i mean obviously it's a pun that doesn't work in latin no (laughs) but i mean i think you can see why the idea of gladiators the idea of people being made to fight for the entertainment of viewers is something that works really really well in an era with television Mm -hmm. and if you project that into the future then you have scope for, you know, for a whole range of kind of plots. So there's the Arnie one, isn't it? The, the running the man. The running man, yeah. But I think the most the most celebrated recent franchise where the echoes of Roma are really, really overt. It's not set in space, but it is set in the future, and that's the Hunger Games. Ah. So it's set in North America where the United States has imploded. And there are kind of all these various outlying districts who have to send a tribute of boys and girls where they are then made to fight the hunger games. They basically kind of, you know, they all have to kill each other. So it's about Theseus. Yeah. So that is, is obviously drawing on the on the Theseus myth, but the setting is Roman. So the the idea of gladiatorial combat, the capital is called Capitol. All oh, right. Um As in Very the, the, the yeah. capital in Rome. And the country itself is called Panem. So bread, as in the bread and circuses of the Star Trek episode we were just talking about. And the, the president is Coriolanus Snow. Coriolanus Snow. So Snow, that's not Roman, but Coriolanus is. And pretty much all the characters in it, apart from the heroine, have kind of classical names. There's kind of Plutarch, Cato, all kinds of people like that. And I think that Hunger Games is a really good example of the way in which... A sprinkling of the Roman yeah. in a science fiction film, in a futuristic film. Gives it a little bit of class.
0: Yeah, it does. I like that, Tom. I've never seen the Hunger Games. You've seen it about
2: 30 times, haven't you? Yeah, I have, because my daughter's loved it. Is it good? Yeah, it's great. Really? Cranky. And it has Woody Harrelson, who I um I saw on the London stage a couple of weeks ago. What was he doing? He was in a brilliant play called, I think, American Ulster or Ulster American I can't remember which way around it was. Something you saw and it two... with Andy Circus. You saw it 2 weeks ago and you don't remember what it was called. Was it Ulster American or American Ulster? I okay. can't remember. Okay. And a girl from uh, an actress from Derry Girls. Okay. It's really really funny. I highly recommend it. you. Well, this this conversation is unexpected. Time. Yeah, I know, we
0: didn't think we'd end up <laughs> end up with that talking about Derry Girls. So, last question. What is it? Why Rome? Why not Greece? Why not I mean, obviously, I guess not Persia, not another empire, because it's Rome that is at the centre
2: that sort of underlies the Western imagination. Is that what is that the, the argument? It's glamorous. It's got great visuals. Yeah, it can stand in for sinister empires, whether it's the British Empire or the Nazis or the Soviet Union or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it has a kind of iconography that's immediately recognisable. It has customs that. We find unsettling, but exciting. Well, violence, basically. So violence, um, so slavery and gladiatorial combat and whips and all kinds of things that when you look at those films in the 50s, there's a clear kind of sadomasochistic. There's uh, a hell of a lot of whipping in those films. There's a lot of whipping in it. Yeah. And um, it's also quite classy, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, the study of, of Latin has been a kind of marker of class right, from the beginning of the American Republic. So,
0: and I suppose you could argue that in our kind of political imagination, those two events—the evolution of the Republic into an empire, and then the decline and fall of the empire—that those are kind of foundational, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that all, almost all political creeds have them
2: have some sense of them at their hearts somewhere. Anyway, yeah, I mean, as you know, to repeat Gibbon, it it is the greatest and most awful scene. And maybe you need the galaxy to truly do it justice. Yes, you do, Tom. We certainly began this
0: podcast with the greatest and most awful impression. <laughs> <laughs> actually, do you know what? It was a pretty good Dave Prowse. I thought it was. It's very similar to the imp- impression that you did for our American will enjoy this of John Adams, the uh, founding father of the United States. Because <laughs> that, of course, is how <laughs> early Americans spoke. <laughs> right. On that bombshell, Tom, I actually enjoyed that, this episode far more than is healthy and that's a terrible thing to say about your own episodes because it makes us look
2: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> very self-indulgent yeah but uh... but we, need it. we needed it after all the Nazis didn't we and a palate cleanser and people being locked up in iron masks exactly so um,
0: we'll be back I believe Tom with the reign of King Richard II we will and the peasants revolt and the peasants revolt and all kinds of exciting goings on in medieval England so we will see you next week bye bye
2: bye bye